Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. The scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Please turn to Ephesians 6 in your Bible or follow along on the sermon notes handout. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, today we are going to begin a new sermon series, as you've heard, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6 on what Ephesians 6 calls the armor of God. And this passage, when I read it, so you know one of my favorite stories, and it's one of the big stories of our culture of the last 20 years, is the story called The Lord of the Rings. Now, I haven't done hardly any illustrations for like a year because I was anticipating this, so now I'm going to give you a whole bunch in this series because I know not everyone likes it like I do, but this series, I've been saving them all up for this one, all right? So when I read this passage of Scripture, I... I immediately imagine the very last big scene, the last big battle in this gigantic epic story of the Lord of the Rings, where the Dark Lord Sauron has sent all of his forces to the final climactic battle against the last city of men, which is called the city of Gondor. The enemy that is attacking the city is organized. Legions of orcs march upon the city. The enemy is extremely evil. I mean, just it's portrayed all the time. The general uh, who's leading the attack on behalf of the enemy yells, do not stop the attack until the city is taken. Slay them all. That's wicked. The enemy is powerful. They hurl giant stones and balls of fire at the city of Gondor, toppling its towers and attacking its walls. And when the steward of Gondor, the guy in charge of the city of Gondor, sees how powerful the enemy is, when he sees all that is coming before him, he loses his nerve, he panics, and he starts yelling, Abandon your posts! Flee for your lives! And as he yells this, Gandalf, one of the great heroes of the story, hits him over the head with his staff, And he yells at all the troops, prepare for battle, defend the wall, attend your posts. 
So the enemy begins its attack on the city of Gondor. And as they approach the wall, they get this giant battering ram, and they start smashing in the main gate of the city. And time and time again, this battering ram hits the, the gate, and Gandalf moves all the soldiers into position behind the gate. And finally, the battering ram splinters through the gate. And as it begins to pull, be pulled backwards, you can see a giant gap has formed, and the enemy is about to pour through the gate into the city. And then Gandalf lifts his voice and he says to the men, you are soldiers of Gondor. Whatever comes through that gate, you will stand your ground. Whatever comes through that gate, you will stand your ground. That is what Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 20 are all about. Here what Paul wants us to do is to help us to understand why life can be so difficult and that even once you become a Christian, why it can be so hard to follow Jesus. And what he says is that we have an enemy, an enemy that is organized, that is evil, and that is powerful. Our enemy is firing arrows of doubt at our hearts, creating all kinds of weird ideas in our minds, trying to topple our lives, all kinds of problems. And so this passage becomes so important for us because what it does is it shows us this angle, pulls back the curtain, so to speak, on why life can be so hard, but it doesn't just tell us why that's the case. Paul tells us what to do about it. And what he says is, Stand your ground. Three times in this passage, he says, withstand or stand. Three times. Your goal against this enemy who is coming against you is to stand your ground. And then he tells us how to do that. And what he says is, God has given you a certain type of armor, and you need to put this armor on. And so over the next eight weeks, this is going to take us for all of fall, we're going to learn about who this enemy is, we're going to introduce it for a few weeks in a row, and then we're going to look at each piece of armor, what it is, and how we put it on in our lives so that we can stand our ground against the enemy that is attacking us. Especially these first couple of sermons as I introduced the whole theme of who our enemy is, what our enemy is like. The whole intention of the Apostle Paul here is to make you, by the end of it, say, Oh man, I am in a major battle. I need some help. I can't do this on my own. Tell me what this armor is so I can put it on. Because you're going to feel like, if you're not aware, you're going to feel like, okay, I'm wearing flip-flops and, and swim trunks and I'm standing on the walls of Gondor as the enemy's coming. And Paul's going to be like, hey guys, let me show you what's really going on here so that you say, tell me about this armor. How do I put it on? How do I equip myself so that I don't get overrun so I can stand my ground? All right? So today, we're going to kick off the series, and we're going to begin by looking at the enemy that we fight. So let's begin talking in the very first place then about the identity of our enemy, the identity of our enemy. So let's begin a little more broadly first. On a basic level, I think we all know, and we know intuitively, and we know in our own experience, that there's something wrong with our world, and there's something wrong with our own lives. So how do you answer that question? What is it that's wrong with the world? What is it that's wrong with your life? People point out many reasons. Some people say, well, what's wrong is the environment that you grew up in. That's the cause. Other people say, no, no, you can't blame your environment. It's the choices that you make. You make choices and there's consequences. Other people say, no, what's wrong is uh, it's things like the law of attraction. You're not thinking positive thoughts. Uh, it's fate. Uh, it's the zodiac that causes things that happen in the world. 
So what is it that is wrong with the world and wrong with your life and with mine? Well, the Bible argues that there are many answers that are partly correct that we give. But what I find so amazing about the Bible's answer is it says that all of our answers are too simplistic. And if you start thinking about it, the Bible's answer to what's wrong with the world is truly satisfying on an intellectual and on an emotional level. You see, the Bible says that evil is complex and it's multidimensional. Multidimensional in the sense that the Bible begins by saying, listen, the reason why this world is messed up and why your life is messed up is that there is evil inside of us. And the Bible calls this our flesh. And it doesn't mean our skin. It means our hearts. Our own hearts have evil and wickedness in them that cause us problems and other people problems. So the Bible begins there saying the problem actually starts within each of us. But then the Bible goes on. It's not just that. The Bible also says that we face evil outside of ourselves. So other people can do wrong to us. There's an entire world system of ideas and of values that can cause problems. Ideas have consequences. Just look at the history of the 20th century. Look at Stalin in Russia. Look at the history of the consequences of ideas. This is what the Bible calls the world. So it's inside of us, our own flesh, our hearts. It's outside of us, this whole worldly system. And then finally, the Bible also says we face evil above ourselves. The Bible teaches that there is such thing as an unseen realm, that there are spiritual forces, dark spiritual forces that are bent on our destruction. And the Bible's summary way of saying this is the devil. The Bible says these three things, the flesh, the world, and the devil, are all at war against us. They all are what cause problems in this world. And in Ephesians 6, what we're going to look at over these next few weeks is to zero in on this third part. But remember the big picture. It's not that the devil's behind everything, but it wants to zero in now on this final part of the evil above us, the evil unseen realm of spiritual powers. So Paul begins by stating who our enemy is not. Here's who our enemy is not. Other people are not our main enemy. Here's what Paul writes. We do not, he says, wrestle against flesh and blood. Now he's not denying that we have struggles with other people and that other people do terrible things. He would agree with that. We do. What he is saying is our struggle is not primarily on that level. There is a supernatural adversary that stands behind many physical adversaries. And so who is that enemy? Here's the answer. Our main enemy is what the Bible refers to as the devil, and we could call it his army of evil spirits. The Bible says there is a spirit being called Satan, Lucifer, the devil, and he's not like the force on Star Wars. You know, the, it's not the dark side of some impersonal force. The Bible says, no, the devil is truly a personal being. You can refer to him as a personal being. He is evil. And next to God, he's the most powerful being in the entire universe. To make matters worse and far more dangerous for us, he's joined in his attack upon us by an army of spirits. Here's what Paul goes on to say. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to take your stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12 actually goes uh, 
Well, let's, let's go to the next one. Let's go to the next slide. Verse 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So you see the picture. You've got, got the devil who's kind of like in the Lord of the Rings, the dark Lord Sauron, the, the, the commander. And then there's this army of evil spiritual beings that do his bidding. So in summary, what Paul is saying to us then is, he's he's kind of blowing a trumpet, saying, wake up to this reality. There is an unseen realm. You have an enemy. Don't just sit there, Paul's going to say. Arm yourself for the fight. Fight in the strength of the Lord. Stand your ground. That's what he's saying so far. Now, I need to pause right at this point. And we need to immediately take some time to deal with an objection that I'm sure some of you are sitting there saying to yourself. And the objection would simply be this. Is he seriously talking about the existence of a real personal devil? I mean, we live in Victoria. We're speaking to educated, modern people. <laughs> are we, is he seriously saying there is such thing as an unseen realm where there is a devil that exists with an army of evil spirits? Do we really believe in that kind of stuff anymore? Well, let me get you to consider a few things to say, yes, what's exactly what we're saying. First of all, consider this. The vast majority of people in the world and the vast majority of people within our own culture believe in the existence of God. And if you ask people, what's God like? People say, God is loving. God is all-powerful. You won't really meet many people on the street that say, I think that the God who created the universe is actually evil. He's malicious. You won't meet people say, no, God exists and God is loving. They might not be able to say anything beyond that, but that's what their belief would be. So now follow this. If there is a good and loving supernatural being called God, is it really so hard to believe that there might also be an evil supernatural being whom the Bible refers to as the devil? If God exists, is it really so strange to believe in the existence of a devil? Well, I think most people would say, yes, it is. And the reason why is because of the image that we have in our minds of what the devil is like. So in the second place, just consider what what is the image that you have in your mind? When you think of the devil, and I'm going to guess that most people would say the devil is like this this horned man uh, with a tail, and uh, he walks around wearing full-body red spandex, and uh, thankfully we don't see him in real life, and he he carries a pitchfork with him. And of course, most people are going to say that's totally absurd. How could anyone possibly believe in that? Well, I'm happy to tell you the Bible does not ask you to believe in that. In fact, there's not even one tiny ounce of truth in what the devil is like in that image that we have. That's surely out of cartoons. It's surely made up. Uh, There is literally nothing. There is nothing in the Bible about a man with, with a cape and red spandex and horns and things like that. Absolutely nothing. So the Bible never asks you to believe in that kind of a devil. So all those ideas that you might have about the devil, just get rid of all of them and realize that's not what the Bible's even talking about. If you have troubles believing in a personal devil. But then finally, and I think this to me is one of the most powerful arguments, consider your answer for why horrific atrocities happen in this world. I mean the really bad stuff. Is it just a matter of people make choices and that's what happens? I mean, don't we know deep in our souls when you hear something, I mean, I could go on for some time about horrific stories. I don't want to do that unnecessarily, but 
We have to bring something into our minds of just reading stories of residential schools right here on Vancouver Island, just a little north of us, and, and a story of five little boys in this residential school who tried to flee the island on a boat and end up drowning because the priest there had raped them so much they couldn't take it anymore. How? How do you explain such an atrocity? Is this just the survival of the fittest? Is this just, I don't know, bad ideas in the world? How do you explain large-scale things like the Holocaust? How do you explain genocides like in Rwanda where, (coughs) excuse me, a million people are killed in a hundred days, most with machetes by their neighbors? I mean, how? How do you explain those kind of things? The Bible's answer, I would suggest to you, is way more satisfying than any other answer. The Bible's going to say, yes, people make their choices. The devil doesn't make anyone do anything. People make their choices. Yes, there's political propaganda. Yes, there's ideas that have consequences. Yes, there's psychological factors, sociological factors. There's all of these factors. The Bible says it's complex and multidimensional, but then it goes on to say behind all of this, there is an unseen realm where there are evil spiritual forces that are influencing governments and people and ideas all for, to commit these kind of evil acts. I find that way more satisfying of an answer because those things just, they're so deeply evil. They're beyond just what a human can do to another human. There's no other word but evil to describe such things like that. We see an example of how this actually works out in, the, in Jesus' life um, in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus had said to Peter that he was going to Jerusalem, and there he would suffer, he would die, and he would rise again. And Peter takes him aside and he begins to rebuke him. He says, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? In Matthew 16, 23, he says, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, clearly it was Peter who had rebuked Jesus. So why does Jesus then say, why does he say, get behind me, Peter? Why does he say Satan? Well, here you kind of just get a little microcosm picture of how this all works. Yes, it's Peter who spoke the words, but in some way Peter's mind has been influenced. The seed idea has been brought into his mind where he's going to say, Jesus, you don't ever have to go to the cross. None of that has to happen. I'll defend you to the death. And Jesus knows what's going on here. This is the serpent himself doing a direct attack upon Jesus to try to undermine him from going to the cross, to keep him from doing the very thing that he came into this world to do. It's a great temptation for Jesus because he doesn't want to be on the cross. No one wants to go there. And so it's a suggestion, it's a temptation that is coming from the evil one himself. So it's Peter. Peter's responsible for what he says, but somehow behind it all, is the influence of the evil one. And it's the same how it works in our world. We shouldn't be thinking of this whole subject in terms of like the exorcist or other crazy types of things like that. that. That's not the main idea here. The main idea is somehow influencing, giving ideas. You see it right here in the book of Ephesians earlier on. I mean, what's Paul been talking about? He's been talking about how Christ saves us from our sins, makes us alive in Christ. We become this new community of believers where we maintain our unity, chapter 4, with one another. And then he works it out in all these areas from honest speech, sexual purity, compassion, the need for forgiveness. These are all the things Christ is working in our lives. 
But then there's all the flip sides of them. The enemy is seeking to deceive us with false ideas, to tear down marriages, to cause conflict in the workplace, to make us bitter, to make us self-centered. That's the level that all this is working on. That's the way our lives get torn down. And so what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 6 is he's pulling back the curtain for us, and we learn that although people are always responsible for their actions, no one can say the devil made me do it, Behind all that happens in our world, there is an enemy. There is an unseen realm that is seeking our destruction. And since our enemy is not made of flesh and blood, we can't fight this enemies with uh, M16s and F18s and uh, all the atomic weapons that we have at our disposal. You can't fight this enemy like that. Rather, we must fight this enemy with God's strength and with the armor, with the weapons that God provides. So that, in the first place then, is the identity of our enemy. Now, let's turn in the second place to talk about the characteristics of our enemy. The characteristics. I mean, most of us hardly think about this unseen realm, and so we we go through life as if we're kind of walking along Dallas Drive, enjoying the day, and that's true, we enjoy it on that level, but what this text is saying is that's true on one level, but on another level, life is kind of like defending Gondor against in its last stand against this evil enemy. So what I want to impress upon us right now, according to what Paul says, is how seriously we must take this. How seriously we must take this whole fall as we look at the armor of God, and it's because of who our enemy is like and what our enemy is actually like. So let me show you three of the characteristics that Paul points out to us. First of all, our enemy is powerful. Our enemy is powerful. Look at verse 12 again. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. You're hearing the word power in here? Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So these words all point to the power, to the authority of the evil forces in the spiritual realm. But right here we've got to be careful because... I meet a lot of people and a lot of Christians who actually have wrong ideas about the power of our enemy. Many, even Christians I talk to, talk as if the universe is a giant battle between God and the devil, as if they're locked in this great eternal combat, and it's really kind of yin and yang, and and it's this battle between a white dog and a black dog, and we'll find out who wins in the end, but we know Jesus is going to win eventually, but it's this great even battle of yin and yang in the universe. It's not what the Bible presents at all. In the Bible, God is all-powerful. Satan's power is limited. God is eternal and uncreated. Satan is a created being. God is present everywhere at all times. Satan is not. God can do whatever he likes. Satan can only do what he is permitted to do. God knows everything. Satan's knowledge is limited. So to help you understand this, think of it this way. A lot of people think of Satan as the counterpart to God. In one sense, that's not true at all. If you want a counterpart for for Satan, Satan's counterpart, according to the Bible, is Michael the archangel. Satan seems to be more powerful in the Bible than Michael the archangel, but they're both angels. They're created beings with a lot of power. But all angels and all creation is in this sphere, and then there's an infinite chasm before you get to God and his all-powerful nature. So compared to God, then, Satan is nothing. Compared to us, he's far more powerful. 
So he's powerful. Secondly, our enemy is wicked. Power can be used for good or for bad. Our enemy uses his power to destroy. Look again at our verse. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, we see in verse 12 these worldwide rulers over this present darkness. Evil always loves the darkness. Notice also they are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is to say, these beings operate in the invisible realm where they live. And so author John Stott, the late John Stott, writes this. If we hope to overcome them, we shall need to bear in mind that they have no moral principles, no code of honor, no higher feelings. They recognize no Geneva Convention to restrict or partially civilize the weapons of their warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in the pursuit of their malicious designs. Powerful, wicked, and in the final place, our enemy is cunning. Again, notice this language uh, that we get in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes, the word there is methodia, which is, is a Greek word. You can see where we get it from, the word method uh, or methodical, right? So the, the attacks of this, this evil power is focused, it's cunning, it's organized. They've had many years, many decades, centuries to perfect it. So bring all this together now on the characteristics of our enemy. Because remember, the, Paul's point here is to really drive home to us, you need to recognize the battle that you're in so that you'll put on this armor of God, right? That's what he's trying to do right now. So to just impress upon us how serious this is, realize it took three questions for Eve and Adam to move from total trust and love for God into suddenly believing that God did not have their best interests at heart, that God was holding back on them, withholding good from them, and they should step out and rebel against this God and their creator. How many minutes did it take? I don't know, not many. The serpent didn't even have to talk to Adam. What's going on with that, Adam? At least Eve stood for a little bit. A mere few minutes and consider the position they were in. They did not have sinful hearts like we do. They knew and loved and trusted God. They're at a way, way bigger advantage than us. Not only that, realize that they were aware of the spiritual realm. They walked and talked with God himself in the garden. We, we are unaware of the spiritual realm. So we are in a far weaker place. They had greater advantages toward us and yet they fell. We'll take care of it. Thank you guys. Adam and Eve fell despite having way more advantages than we presently have at this moment. How much more then should we be paying attention to how seriously we have to take care of this battle that we find ourselves in? We should be desperately saying, okay, Paul, this is true. I need to learn how to fight in the strength of the Lord. I need to know what this armor is. I need how to put this armor on for our enemy is powerful, wicked, and cunning. Now, as I want to continue to impress upon us how seriously we should take our enemy and this call to put on God's armor, let's consider in the third place the goal of our enemy. 
We've seen who the enemy is. We've seen what he's like. Now, what is he after? Again, to impress upon us how seriously we've got to take this armor. Clearly, we've already seen his goal is to wage war against those who come to Christ, who give their lives to him. Notice, though, that Paul repeats himself over and over and over again in verse 12. What word keeps coming up in verse 12? You'll see it now. Here it comes. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. His goal then is to wage war against us, to discourage us, to, to, to lead us into temptation towards sin, to steal our joy, to embitter us, to ruin marriages, to ruin families, to ruin churches. He's always at work to do all of these kind of things. And of course, even around the world, to torture and to kill those who would dare to follow Christ. But here's what I want to ask. Now, focus with me on this. Why? Okay, well, we know he's evil, so that maybe explains why. But no, what really, why? What have Christians done to deserve being attacked like this. I mean, especially some of our brothers and sisters around the world where it's literally deny that Jesus is Lord or have your head cut off. That's literally what has gone on all through history and continues to this day where people for their faith in Christ lose their heads and their lives. Why? Why? What's going on behind all this? Is is it just that he's evil and wicked? Well, partly. Uh, But there's a deeper answer that's given to us in the scriptures in Revelation chapter 12. Did a whole sermon on this if you're interested back in the Advent series that we called the Snake Crusher a few years ago. Uh, you can go back and check out if you want the big picture. But here's the, what Revelation 12 does Revelation 12 explains why Jesus' people face so many trials and tribulations and persecution. There, the Apostle John pulls back the curtain again, just like we're getting to do. And we, we, what we discover there is that the devil is, first of all, Jesus' enemy. In the first place, he hates Jesus. It's not so much Jesus' people. In the first place, it's Jesus. So when you read Revelation 12, the serpent tried to kill Jesus through King Herod when he was born. Then he tried to tempt him to sin so he would fail. Satan hates Jesus and did all he could to attack him. And so then Revelation 12 goes on and says, despite all these attacks, Jesus is victorious. He dies. He goes into the grave. He rises again. He ascends into heaven. And as he ascends into heaven, he arrives there as the victorious, conquering king. And as the conquering king, the serpent, the great dragon, is cast out of heaven. And there's great rejoicing in heaven because the serpent has been defeated through the resurrection of Christ. But then the text goes on, and it talks about those of us who dwell on the earth, for he was cast down to the earth. And does he accept his defeat at the hands of Jesus? Does he just quit fighting and say, well... I mean, I lost the decisive battle. I know one day Jesus is going to come back and I'm going to be destroyed. Does he just say, oh, I guess I'll just... No. He's like a serpent backed into a corner and he's going to fight to the very last breath. And since he cannot fulfill his ultimate objective to harm and to destroy Jesus, he turns the full force of his fury... Listen to this. He turns the full force of his fury upon that which is most precious to Jesus... Namely, Jesus' people. So we can put it like this. What is the goal of our enemy? According to Revelation 12, the devil's goal is to harm Jesus by harming Jesus' people. 
His enemy is Jesus, who he hates the most. He can't get to Jesus anymore, and so he will go after that which is most precious to Jesus, which is Jesus' people. And so that's why Revelation 12, after celebrating the conquering king of Christ, the devil being hurled down, goes on and it says these words, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. That's pulling back the curtain. That's the ultimate explanation for why Christians have been persecuted all through history, for why we struggle so much in this world. Because our enemy knows his time is short. And if you align yourself with Jesus, you can be sure that his forces will also be coming for you, which we'll have much more to say in a a moment, because that's not ultimately discouraging. Oh yes, Jesus will ultimately win the war when he returns, but that time is not yet here. And so once again, Paul writes all of this to motivate us to recognize the battle we're in, to help us to understand it so that we will then be able to stand, that we won't fall, that we'll be saying, tell me about this armor (laughs) so I can put it on so that I, I can stand and stand in the strength of the Lord. So that's all the serious stuff, the hard stuff, the dark stuff, but we can't end there today. So let's finally now talk about, in the fourth and final place, the conqueror of the enemy, the conqueror of the enemy. This whole discussion about our struggle against our enemy has to be kept within the broader context of the whole Bible story. So I'll put it this way. Christians fight from a position of victory, not defeat, because Jesus has won the decisive battle against Satan. We fight in a battle, but we fight from a position of a victory that's already been won for us, Because Jesus has won the decisive battle. Oh yes, Jesus has not come to finally destroy our enemy, but he has won the decisive battle, the only battle that really counts. So let's just quickly go into some other of Paul's writings. Here's what he says in Colossians chapter 2. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do this? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So on the cross, he takes our sins, which is the weapon that our evil powers use against us because we're guilty. We deserve judgment, but our sins have been forgiven at the cross. And so then, as a result, at the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him through the cross. Now, I want us to zero in on those words, disarmed, open shame, triumphing. These words in the first century would have been known to everyone. They would have had associations with them, and everybody would have associated them with a Roman general who had gone off to battle for the empire of Rome, had won a victory, had come back to Rome, and was now brought in in a giant parade to meet Caesar and to receive his ultimate prize of, you know, good job, way to go, way to win one for the empire. So let me give you a a historical description of what's going on there because Paul means for all this to be in your mind, okay? So here's an an example. The Roman general, Amelius Paulus, went and captured the country of Macedonia, the land of Macedonia. When he returned to Rome, there was a three-day parade to celebrate this victory. Great scaffolds were built 
all in the forum and all along the streets so that people could stand on them and sit on them, and everyone turned out in their festive white robes to celebrate this great victory. On day number one, 259 chariots displayed in procession all the statues, the artwork, and all of the uh, colossal images that were taken from the defeated enemy. So imagine 259 floats, if you will, uh, going by with all the stuff we've taken from the enemy we conquered. On the second day, hundreds of wagons, all with the armor of the Macedonians, all their armor and all these wagons, floats covered in the armor. Following following these wagons, 3,000 people came carrying the enemy's silver in 750 vessels, followed by more treasure. So we've defeated them. Here's all their stuff. Here's all their money. Here's all their treasures. And then finally, on the third day, came the defeated army themselves. Rome's strategy was to show the world how powerful they were. And so they stripped all the soldiers naked, bound them in chains, and paraded them down through Rome as the defeated army. And at the back of the army came the king of Macedonia, also stripped of his armor, stripped of his crown, and displayed for all to see and for all to make fun of. Finally came the victorious general, Amelius Paulus, the Roman general. And here's the quote of uh, people that were there and described it. The victorious general came seated on the chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold and holding a laurel branch in his hand. Laurel branches were the sign of victory. All the army in like manner with boughs of laurel in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, followed the chariot of their commander, some singing songs according to the usual custom of the songs of triumph and the praise of Amelius's deeds." That's the imagery behind these words, disarm, triumphing, public spectacle. And what Paul is saying, now get all this now, bring it all together. What Paul is saying is what Jesus accomplished on the cross was the utter defeat, the disarmament, and the exposing to public shame of the evil powers. For the weapons that they had against us were our sins. We deserved to be judged. We deserved condemnation. But on the cross, Jesus took that record of our sins, nailed it to the cross, and through his blood shed for us, forgave us our sins so that that record that stands against us has been canceled. In other words, the enemy has no more weapons. The, the, the greatest weapons have been stripped of the enemy. And so what Jesus was saying is you see the cross from a different angle. The angle now you should see it from is an angle of victory that on the cross Jesus disarmed the enemy and exposed them to public shame saying you have nothing on my people anymore. You've been stripped naked, you're in chains, and you're utterly defeated. That is the picture of what Christ did on the cross. And the serpent knows all this. He knows he's been defeated. He knows that his time is short for a day is coming when Jesus will return. And on that day, the scriptures say that the devil who deceived the peoples of the earth will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur and he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In other words, we fight from a position of victory. Oh, it's a fierce battle. But the end is a foregone conclusion. The end has already been written, for the main battle has already been fought. And that is why we're about to sing with all our hearts in a few moments. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. 
until he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, what? Say it. I'll stand. We stand. Stand your ground. That's the call of this passage. We stand against our enemy because no power of hell can ever pluck us from Christ's hand. The victory's already been won. And for all who come to Christ, that victory is already secure. And so that's where we end this morning is I would challenge you and ask you first to make sure whose side are you on. At the end of history, there's only two sides. We either join Jesus' side and we join in the victory and the celebration and the great world to come, or we join in the defeat and the eventual destiny of the evil one. Christ came to forgive us our sins, to set us free, and to bring us into this world to come. And so I just ask each of you, have you kneeled before King Jesus and said to him, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Reconcile me to God. Save me from any judgment that there is against me. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And he's to this very day, in this very moment, offers himself to each and every single one of us saying, I'm a merciful king. I'm a king who offers pardon to any who come to me. But you got to come and bow the knee. You got to say, Jesus, my life is yours. Forgive me and take me to be your own. And when you do that, he takes you to be his own. And no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. Let's pray. So Jesus, we, we do that. We come before you saying we need a Savior. Each of us say we have sinned against you. Forgive us of our sins. And Jesus, we proclaim you to be the victor, to be the king above all kings, to be the only power that can save us for we are weak. We're very weak. But in you we are strong. So Jesus, we look to you as our great conqueror, as our king, the only one who can give us the strength to stand our ground. Teach us all that that means over the weeks to come. Teach us how to apply your great gospel message to our hearts. We pray that each of us would stand, that we would stand our ground in this life, and you would bring us safely through to the next. We praise you, Jesus, and you alone can we stand. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.